Baptist broadcast. I'm your host, Joshua Summer. If you are watching here on YouTube, please do not click for blah, 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 blah. please do not forget to click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. You you, you would think that after saying that probably a hundred times over throughout the last couple of years, or, or the last year at least, I would have gotten it down by now, but uh, obviously I have not. Uh, guys, today I want to talk about uh, the Christian theory of cognition and what we should understand that to be, but involved in this discussion is really the broader consideration of what's typically called epistemology. This might be uh, more of an involved episode than I originally bargained. Uh, so bear with me, please. It's it's likely going to, um, you know, it's likely going to, it's likely going to take a while to get through uh, what I want to get through today. And uh, the hope is that we could do a what would what will amount to a kind of introduction to uh, epistemology, generally considered, or uh, cognitive science generally considered, what that is, what it is not, how we should think about it uh, in an orderly fashion, and then lead that on into uh, a consideration of uh, how man knows what he knows, how he comes to knowledge, um, and um, kind of codify that into what uh, I'll be calling, and this is not original to me, it's it's a Frederick Wilhelmson and others would call it realist epistemology or metaphysical realism, um, putting knowledge predominantly within metaphysics rather than thinking of it as its own uh, science. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll distill all this down by looking at how Scripture seems to order man's knowledge. How, how does Scripture think of the way man comes to knowledge? Or or how does it describe the process of man coming to knowledge? And I think what we'll find in Scripture is that there is a thoroughly realist, rather than, I, rather than an idealist or a critical way in which man comes to knowledge according to Scripture. Um, I, I want to begin this episode by talking a little bit about my experience. This conversation about epistemology is obviously going to relate to uh, questions and conversations that usually occur within the uh, sphere or the practice of apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. And, you know, we, we all know that there are about three main schools of Christian apologetics, evidentialism, classicalism, and presuppositionalism, or at least that's been kind of the uh, more contemporary characterization of the apologetic landscape uh, within Christian circles, uh, broadly speaking, uh, or within evangelical circles, broadly speaking. And we know that... Uh, at least over the last 10 years or so, and, and obviously it's, it's longer than that, but with social media and the way information moves so rapidly and so on, the conversation about 
epistemology has largely been centered um, between uh, two or more camps, really between those three camps of, of Christian apologetics. And one particular school of thought that has really concerned itself with epistemology has been presuppositionalism, which is usually couched as or, or, or cast as a, an apologetic methodology. It's a lot more than that, and that's part of what I would like to say here, and, and, and I will say in some ways throughout this presentation but I wanted to give a little bit of my background when it comes to presuppositional apologetics, because much of what we're going to talk about here is going to relate to the debates about epistemology that usually occur between presuppositionalists, classicalists, and evidentialists, but mostly between presuppositionalists and classicalists. Uh, when I say classicalists, I mean classical theists, uh, those who adhere to the confessional reform tradition uh, and consistently apply that within their uh, reasoning, whether it has to do with the defense of the faith properly so-called or even the prolegomena to Christian theology, which will include a conversation on natural theology. Okay. In 2015, I was employing the presuppositional method of apologetics because I was under the impression that that's predominantly what it was within the context of street evangelism. And it was within the context of street evangelism in Southern California, particularly in San Diego on Saturdays at Balboa Park, which if you've ever been to Balboa Park on a Saturday, uh, you will know that it is a cauldron of confusion. That's how I'm would describe it, and I usually called it back then. It was just a, a kind of uh, land of confusion. If you were undiscerning and had no idea what you believed, to walk through Balboa Park on the Prado on Saturday would be a very confusing place if you had no uh, foundation, philosophical, doctrinal, or otherwise. And every Saturday we would go there to evangelize, and it was at this time that I had come to a conviction. I won't go into the backstory of how I came to the conviction that presuppositionalism was the Reformed Christian apologetic and was the most biblical, biblically faithful apologetic mode or, or mode of reasoning. Uh, I won't go into that backstory, but, but I will say that in 2015, as of 2015, I was a convinced presuppositionalist. And it was in 2015 that I began getting into the debates between presuppositionalism, classicalism, evidentialism, you know, and you had your you had your figureheads, right, that kind of represented all these different schools of thought. You had William Lane Craig, who kind of straddled the line between classicalism and evidentialism. Um, uh, of course, you had your 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 evidentialists, properly so-called, which would be the Ken Hovens and, um, uh, you know, uh, Jason Lyle, uh, who who is who kind of actually straddles the line between presuppositionalism and evidentialism. Uh, but you'd also have, um, you know, I'm trying to think of his name now, uh, Re Reasons to Believe, RTB, um, that guy. Uh, some of you are probably saying his name right now, uh, but I can't, I can't, I can never remember it. Um, Alvin Plantinga, 
again, that's kind of the more the analytical uh, philosophy and theology uh, side of things, which which really straddles the line between classicalism and evidentialism when it comes to the defense of the faith. And um, I was wading into that debate um, in addition to just trying to figure out how to engage skeptics on the street in Southern California, I was also trying to figure out how to defend my apologetic methodology from other Christians who disagreed with me. And so toward the tail end of 2014, it was when I was in Bible college, 14 to 15, I uh, decided that I was going to read through as much as I had available to myself and could purchase I was going to read through Cornelius Van Til's corpus, um, his body of work, to really pencil through, because you always hear these caricatures of presuppositionalism, and you're under the impression that it's always being misrepresented by classicalists and so on. And so I, I finally just decided to put pen to paper and make the rubber meet the road and, and read through Van Til's corpus and really pencil it through what, what he was talking about. So I did that. I, I read... Chris, um, uh, defense of the faith, Christian apologetics, Christian theistic evidences. Keep in mind, a lot of this, a lot of these syllabi are included in the defense of the faith. Um, uh, intro to systematic theology, reformed epistemology, reformed epistemology. If you don't read it as as its separate work, you're you're going to get it in defense of the faith and Christian apologetics and, and Christian theistic evidences. And then to supplement all that, I started reading Bonson, who is probably. Um, Van Til's most faithful expositor um, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, that torch has kind of been picked up by uh, Scott Oliphant at Westminster, Pennsylvania. Um, and so I, I, I started reading these, these works and I, and I read all of them. Um, and I understood the method. Um, and I understood how to employ it uh, on on the level of, you know, evangel evangelistic outreach on the Prado on Saturday on Saturday mornings in in Southern California, San Diego, Balboa Park. And so this is a, and I was thoroughly convinced that this was the the reformed apologetic, though no one prior to the twentieth century. Uh, adhered to this method. I I literally I remember telling a seminary professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary back in probably 2016, and at this point I was I was kind of on my way out of presuppositionalism, but I I was I was holding on by a thread. I remember telling a a, a professor that Van Til was the final reformer. Um, that's the kind of confidence that I had in, in, in the method and in Van Til's work and, and in all of the other supplementary, secondary source material, Bonson, Scott Oliphant, I read Covenantal Apologetics, Reasons for Faith. Um, uh, Bonson has it. There's another book, uh, Presuppositional Apologetics, I think it's titled uh, by him, as well, listen to Bonson lectures and um, the debate between Bonson and R.C. Sproul. Uh, you know, I 
I cut my teeth on on presuppositional apologists, and I I carried that stuff into the street, and it was something that I was I was very convinced was was true. But something that and this this kind of happened on my way out the door, uh, when I was kind of when I became convinced that presuppositionalism was not the end-all be-all, nor was it the, the reformed apologetic, when I was on the way out that door, um, I, I came to realize that what presuppositionalism was was not an apologetic methodology. It entailed an apologetic methodology, but it was not a mere apologetic methodology. It was something much more than that. It was really an entire philosophy of human cognition or epistemology that itself had to be defended. And oftentimes I would end up defending Van Til and his particular model of epistemology, which was nothing more really than a Christianization of the epistemology of Immanuel Kant uh, insofar as he really followed Descartes and assumed the validity of, of skepticism in the critical method. And I would have to, I actually ended up having to defend Van Til and his method before I could get to any sort of productive conversation about the gospel. Now, this doesn't always happen. We've all seen conversations and have been involved in conversations where sometimes there is a, a successful, uh, you know, moving from the reductio ad absurdums uh, and the impossibility of the contraries, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. There's there's actually a success of moving from that to the gospel. Sometimes, I would I would I would propose to you, however, that that when there is success, moving from the presuppositional mode of argumentation to a presentation of the gospel, it's in spite of the method, it's not because of the method. Uh, at least that's that was that was my experience. Now, of course, there's going to be people who accuse me of, you know, I never understood it in the first place, I didn't know how to apply it properly, and, 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 and all of that. But maybe some of you who are, who are uh, sitting here watching this or listening to this have some of the same experiences, where you, you actually end up having to defend Van Til and you have to end up defending epistemology, a particular brand of epistemology, in order to get to the thing that you started out wanting to get to in the first place, which was the gospel. Um, so that's that's kind of my background. Um, I, I could talk for hours about my experiences with employing presuppositionalism I have, there are debates that are still available on YouTube that I've been involved in, uh, live debates, like on a stage and everything, where I employed presuppositionalism. Um, one of those debates in particular uh, took place at a venue in North Kansas City. It's still on uh, YouTube, I believe, under the Reformed Collective. Uh, and that debate... Uh, uh, was against a a representative of the Kansas City Atheist Coalition, um, KCAC, uh, and I present and utilize uh, 
presuppositionalism in in that debate. So you can go back to that as kind of an archival evidence that you know this was something that I was employing um, to to really move from that. Then uh, I, I guess I guess the reason I I wanted to to recount my experience is is to say that I'm not coming to this as an outsider. Um, and my understanding of, uh, Christian cognition is what I'll call it. Um, even though cognition is really a natural operation, uh, not distinctly Christian, but I, I, I'm calling it Christian cognition because these conversations tend to always be tinted by, um, what we believe about God and, and what, what we believe about, uh, redemption and our lives within the context of the redemptive economy and so forth. Um, I'm not coming to this as an outsider. I'm not, I'm not looking at this from the outside in. I'm, 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 I'm coming to this issue as one who has actually tried to learn and apply these different modes of reasoning and have tried to understand human cognition um, and have done so in multiple camps. And now I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that uh, realist epistemology, uh, which would just be like the classical theory of cognition, is, is true. I think it's, it's not only the most common sense, it is, but it's... It's also, I think, thoroughly biblical, and we'll see that um, here in a moment. So hopefully a recounting of my experience, as summary as it was, nevertheless is, is helpful for you to understand where I'm coming from. Uh, and, and so the other thing that I want to say is, you know, I, I try not to approach— I used to get very frustrated at these conversations, and it, it's, it's this conversation and— the conversation about dispensationalism, two, those two conversations in particular, used to really frustrate me. Um, you, you become so convinced about something that you, 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 you can't help but see it. And then you, 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 you see the aberrations of what the alternative views are. Uh, their accretions, and they, they tend to... Uh, inaccurately portray or present the reality uh, and so that's that becomes a frustration but I want to say here that I, I don't have any animosity toward anyone who's a presuppositionalist I don't think you're a heretic I don't um, I, I don't want to come off that way um, I don't even want to come off as if I'm attacking you uh, or even as if I'm attacking your position um, I, I want to instead build a more positive case of what I believe, uh, the true cognitive situation to be. Um, but I do think this applies to that particular discussion, presuppositionalism, classicalism, and insofar as presuppositionalism is, a, is an entire overhaul of one's epistemology. I think this discussion and what I have here, the material that I have here will be helpful in kind of thinking through where you stand regarding how we know, what we know, um, 
whether we know for that matter. So what I'll do here is I'll uh, I'm going to I'm going to look at a few things. We're we're going to start by asking the question what is epistemology? Uh wh- what it is, what it isn't. Um one of the things that I find in the in the apologetic discussion kind of in that in that sphere of things uh less so the overall philosophical discussion but more in the apologetic side of things when a particular epistemology like presuppositional uh, epistemology has to be defended there are like epistemology as a thing is taken for granted like like it's taken for granted just that there is such a thing as epistemology and in principle what that thing is what epistemology is is taken for granted as well and it's actually it's more complicated than that, um, and and that's not entirely an accurate assumption that that epistemology is just this science of knowledge is kind of an oversimplified understanding of what epistemology is historically and doctrinally. So um, we're going to start by asking what is epistemology. Then we'll look at uh, a couple different uh, angles of epistemology historical, doctrinal, and specific epistemology. And then I'll ask the question, how man knows? We'll try to get into that. We'll codify that as realist epistemology. Uh, and then we'll look at the biblical theory of cognition. Um, so what is epistemology? Typically, when you when you ask the question, what is epistemology, you, you, you get an answer like, it's the study of how man knows, or it's this the the science of knowledge, um, and that would probably be be the more specific definition that's often given, popularly given. Um, and right there, we're we're struck with a problem. Uh, whereas we we might nonchalantly, in you know our honest ignorance say, well, yeah, epistemology is a thing and it's the science of knowledge. That's what epistemology is. Um, But actually, that's problematic. It's problematic um, because if a science, so uh, uh, let's say um, a science, let's say that a science is a, uh, a way of knowing a particular thing or object um, if a science or a study is the study of something through its causes, like biology is the study of life, if there was no life, there would be no biology, um, then if, if, that, if that's what a study is or a science is, that it, that it, that it occurs through what causes it, um, its formal object, we, we, we might call it, then technically in the most technical sense, there is no single science of human epistemology uh, or, or of human knowledge because the causes of knowledge are, are many. Frederick Wilhelmsen uh, notes that the causes of knowledge are many, therefore there really is not like this one or singular science of human cognition or, uh, or epistemology. Um, knowledge is derived from sense experience. It's derived from things like philosophical inquiry. It can be even derived from beauty. 
and so it doesn't have like a single cause that you can say, yeah, th this is the formal object of human knowledge because human knowledge has all kinds of objects, right? Human knowledge knows all kinds of things and it knows all kinds of things in various ways in proportion to the things known. And so there, there is not really a, a single science or a single study of epistemology. And that, that kind of, I think, owes to the oversimplification of our discussions about epistemology more often than not. And so it's, it's, it's somewhat inadvertently deceptive. It's not purposefully deceptive, I don't think, by any means. But it's inadvertently deceptive to try and wrap human cognition or human knowing into a single science or study. And that's often what ends up happening in, you know, uh, debates about um, uh, epistemology within within Christian circles today. Um, you know, I this is probably likely a phenomenon that started happening after the Enlightenment. This is a, a post Enlightenment feature where. All of these, you know, all the different causes of human knowledge are wrapped into one thing that's called the study of human knowledge or epistemology. And that's because post-enlightenment, you get a collapse of the sciences, uh, principles, uh, formal cause, material cause, uh, specifically as it relates to the formal object of a particular uh, science, all of that breaks down and all of that under the weight of skepticism kind of starts to, to shift, break apart, and eventually you move 100 years downstream from someone like Descartes and then Hume after him. And you are, you are left with the breakdown of the sciences, you're left with the breakdown of principles, you're, you're left with disordered thought, um, a lack of, um, uh, a lack of uh, distinction, and so on. And so the sciences are collapsed. Because the sciences are collapsed, it's not a big deal to say that there's a single science or study of epistemology, even though there are manifold causes to human knowledge. Um, Post-Enlightenment philosophy tends to um, destroy distinction uh, and destroy uh, the kind of formal differences between the sciences and between various objects of man's knowledge and so on. It's why you get post-modernism eventually, I, I think. Um, not only do you have skepticism that leads to, you know, things like nihilism and, and, and so on, but you also have a, 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 a destruction of distinction uh, at the Enlightenment and following therefrom um, that will play into why... Uh, thought is disordered, and then that disorder is embraced to some extent in postmodernism and then shown forth in our architecture and our art and so on. So the the problem is, is that there's no real, you know, there's no real, like, one science of epistemology that's kind of a deceptive way or a misleading way. Let's use the word misleading. It's a misleading way to talk about uh, various theories of cognition. Um the solution to this, I think, and this this goes with what Frederick Wilhelmsen, who wrote the uh, he wrote the book *Man's Knowledge of Reality*, which is very helpful um, when it comes to uh, theological cognition. Put it that way: philosophical theological cognition. 
the solution, I think, is we should we should consider knowledge as a psychological operation, meaning it's a state of being. Uh, it's it's or 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 we might say it's 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 something that we do. It's an operation. Uh, we might we might be able to describe it as a way of existing, like Wilhelmson does. Um, and given that it's a psychological operation, it falls within the philosophy and theology of man. So rather than making it its own science, like the science of epistemology, it actually falls within the purview of the science of anthropology or the science of man. Um, and so should formally be considered within theological and philosophical anthropology. Um and I think what ends up muddying the waters is the discussion about epistemology is often considered in its own right and for its own sake, rather than being considered a, 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 a quality, property, or a feature of, uh, of, of anthropology, um, particularly theological anthropology within this within this context, but also philosophical anthropology or natural anthropology. Um, so when it comes to man's cognitive operation, it's, it's, it's a psychological operation that should be studied under the uh, formal science of anthropology. In other words, it's not a science that is, 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 is out there on its own. It doesn't have a singular formal object, whereas anthropology does have a singular formal object, and that is man. And when you start talking about man, you have to talk about his soul and body. When you talk about man's soul, you're talking about his intellect. When you talk about his intellect, you have to talk about intellectual operation. When you're talking about intellectual operation, you're talking about psychology. <laughs> okay, so there are, uh, that doesn't mean that there's no right way to talk about epistemology. That's, that doesn't mean that there's, uh, that there is no epistemology, there is. It's just not a, it's just not a thing that should be considered as a science by itself, um, or or even an area uh, like its own field. It's not. It falls under the field of, of anthropology. But there are right ways to talk about epistemology. Wilhelmson says there are basically three right ways to talk about epistemology. That would be historical epistemology, doctrinal epistemology, and specific epistemology. Historical epistemology would be a consideration of how man has sought to answer what we would call the critical problem. Um, the critical problem is the question, as Wilhelmson puts it, how does the mind move from an understanding of itself and its own operations to an understanding of things outside of itself? That's the critical problem. The critical problem is how do you get from here to out there. Or or we might be able to reverse that and say, how do you get what's out there into what's what's in here, right? Uh, so, so how do you get what's out there into the intellect, into the mind, um, is, is essentially the critical problem. And so his, historical epistemology would be kind of a, a, a survey uh, or an observation of how man has historically tried to answer the the critical problem, how how man has sought to answer the question of how we get from here to out there, or how we get from out there to in here. So all the different ways in which men have, have tried to answer this question are lumped together in epistemology or historical epistemology. So in a sense, in that way, uh, it's become its own field of inquiry. 
So if you're talking about uh, epistemology in terms of how man has sought to answer that critical problem, then there is a legitimate field of expertise, I think. Uh, even though epistemology as a formal object uh, by itself is not a, a, a particular science, uh, it falls under anthropology formally considered. Yet, when we're talking about how man has gone about trying to answer the critical problem, we're looking at kind of historical uh, epistemology in that in that sense, it's a it's a field of inquiry. More importantly, doctrinal epistemology investigates the relationship between the metaphysics of knowledge and the psychology of knowledge. So, th uh, uh, this is an this is another area of the epistemological or the cognitive discussion that that's not talked about very much. Um, and, and and talking about presuppositionalism, and I'll make note of this here in a moment. This is an area that I think is is often confused in presuppositional thought. Um, we have to remember that knowledge is like actually a thing, and since it's a thing, since knowledge exists, it falls within the purview of metaphysics. Since metaphysics is the study of being, being is the principle of uh, of metaphysics, and so uh, if knowledge is being, like if it's a thing if it exists, if it's real, then it falls within the purview of metaphysical inquiry. So usually in a, in a modern philosophy class, you'll, you'll, you'll hear that there are basically three branches of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, and logic, sometimes, or not logic, but ethics. Uh, aesthetics is sometimes added to that, so four branches. Sometimes logic is added as a fifth branch. Um, but typically there are three or four branches of, of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and aesthetics, and sometimes logic. Um, and the reason that that's, that's problematic because it, 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 it introduces a separation between knowledge and metaphysics when if knowledge is real, if it's a thing, then it actually falls under the umbrella of metaphysical inquiry and doesn't stand on its own uh, as a separate branch of inquiry. Um, this kind of goes into the the uh, the claim I made earlier that that epistemology doesn't stand on its own as its very own science. It, it, it falls under really the 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 umbrella of metaphysics. And what doctrinal epistemology, according to Wilhelmson, seeks to do is it is it seeks to understand the relationship between what knowledge is, that's the metaphysics, what the metaphysics of knowledge, what knowledge is, with the psychology of knowledge, which, which is the operation of knowing. Okay, so, um, so, we, so doctrinal epistemology deals with what knowledge is, the latter uh, deals with, well, actually, let me, let me restate it this way. Doctrinal Epistemology deals with what knowledge is, and it deals with the manner of operation of that knowledge, uh, how that knowledge operates. Uh, a question that we we've we've asked before, and and that you may have asked before, is how do I know anything? How do I come to knowledge? And that's dealing with really the the psychological operation of the knowledge uh, of of man's knowledge or of man's knowing, we might say. And so, um, there's the metaphysics of knowledge. Uh, you know, we might consider the soul, the intellect, the will, uh, the intellect being the, the seat of knowledge and, and wisdom. 
and then the uh, the operation, how how the intellect apprehends knowledge, how it how it comes to know, uh, how it conforms to its object, and so on. Uh, those are those are two things dealt with in doctrinal epistemology. We could call that area of inquiry um, theoretical cognition, or uh, if we're talking about a particular theory of uh, that relationship, we could we could we could call it the theory of cognition. Um, applying this conversation just briefly to to presuppositionalism, just to make a note here. Uh, presuppositionalism tends to wrap the metaphysics of knowledge and the psychology of knowledge into a singular theory of epistemology. And the, the problem with that is, um, is that at that point you begin to confuse and lose the distinction between metaphysics on the one hand and, uh, and, and man's psychological operation on the other. So what is presupp like for example what is presupposed when we start to talk about presuppositions or when we start when we start to talk about man's responsibility to presuppose this or that what we're essentially talking about is it's a psychological question um the operation uh, because it has to do with the operation of man's knowing or man's intellect uh so what is presupposed is a psychological question while what accounts for our knowledge and being able to have knowledge in the first place deals with the what of knowledge, and that is fundamentally a consideration of metaphysics. The what of knowledge, the being of knowledge, what knowledge is most fundamentally, and that gets into conversations about the nature of man's intellect, right? So, um, you know, psychology uh, or psychological operation, of course, implies and underlying metaphysical cause. Um, but metaphysics, or the nature of things as they are, uh, do not depend on man's psychological state. And sometimes I think in presuppositional thought, that distinction is is in danger or at risk of being collapsed. Um, so doctrinal epistemology deals with the relationship of uh, the metaphysics of knowledge with the psycho operation, psychological operation of man's intellect. Then there's specific epistemology. Uh, specific epistemology is the consideration of various kinds of human knowledge, because there are different kinds of human knowledge, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and those different kinds of human knowledge are denominated by the various causes or sources of that knowledge. So um, knowledge of biology is a distinct kind of knowledge from philosophical knowledge or knowledge gained through uh, beauty or intuitive knowledge. Um, so there are different kinds of knowledge and different ways in which man comes to knowledge. And so it's not as simple as saying, here's the science of cognition or here's the science of epistemology. Um, here's the starting point and you just reason from here and everything will be hunky-dory. Well, it, we have to understand that there are, are principles, that there are formal objects, and there are distinct sciences and so it, it involved here. And so it's, it's actually very uh, confusing and, and it causes a lot of confusion downstream to wrap all of that into an overly simplified singular science or area of study. Unless you're dealing with something like historical epistemology. Now, um, 
so we're gonna so let's move from the there's not really a good way to transition not not always a good way to transition these things um but we're gonna move from what is epistemology looking at three valid ways of talking about epistemology historical doctrinal and specific epistemology um to now looking at how man knows so what is epistemology? It's usually defined as the science of knowledge. That's actually a very complicated or confusing downstream way to define it. Um, epistemology, the, the three valid uses of epistemology, is historical epistemology, which is a study of how man has sought to reconcile the metaphysics of knowledge and man's psychological operation. Um, and, um, uh, and then doctrinal epistemology deals with that relationship uh, directly metaphysics of knowledge with the cycle the psychology of knowledge it deals with what knowledge is and it deals with the manner of operation of man's knowing uh, and then specific epistemology uh, considers the various kinds of human knowledge as they're denominated by their various causes their objects sources etc so now let's move to how man knows i'm going to start positionalizing myself here because i'm going to come down on the um uh, the realist epistemological side of things, uh, and because I have a realist theory of cognition, I think that that's common sense. Uh, I think it's historically uh, the case that that's generally how the world has functioned, at least prior to the Enlightenment, is on a, a kind of realistic epistemological uh, cognitive basis. Um and I think it's biblical as well. So would we just generally ask the question, how man knows? Uh, that question can be answered by two basic or two main schools of thought. Um, it can be answered by critical epistemology. And critical epistemology seeks to establish man's knowledge through human thought. So man's knowledge is established through through man's thought rather than through the things that are to be thought about. So in other words, critical epistemology moves from thought to thought. It doesn't move from the thing observed to thought. Wilhelmsen, I think, helpfully describes critical epistemology. He says, the critical philosophers following the program of Descartes attempt to subject the instruments of knowing to a searching analysis, a cognitive activity, to a searching analysis, which is like methodic doubt, a searching analysis in order that they might establish, if possible, the reliability of human knowledge itself. They begin with the evidence of thought, I think. They terminate, perhaps, in the evidence of being. Therefore, I am. Okay. And so that's what... That's what Wilhelmsen is 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 basically saying here that this cogito ergo sum, you know, Cartesian uh, methodic doubt leading him to the conclusion that really all he can know for certain at the very bottom of the glass is that he thinks, and then he infers from that that he is. That's the general reasoning process of critical epistemology. The principle here is that you begin your knowledge apparatus with something that you think. You begin your knowledge apparatus with something that you think. Your knowledge apparatus doesn't begin with objective reality out there. It begins with a thought. I think. Right? 
therefore I am. So the, the critical philosopher relies on an intellectual operation in order to establish the possibility of intellectual operation. It's a very circular process. And, you know, you get into presuppositional circles and they essentially apply a Christianized version. The thought that they begin with is the presupposition. And, uh, and, and they admit that this is a circle. They'll deny that it's a vicious circle. They'll say it's a virtuous circle and, and things like that. But they're essentially stuck with the circle of critical epistemology. Um, and then the question becomes, well, how do you get from that initial thought or that initial presupposition to uh, something that's not your own thought? Uh, and, 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 then, and, and then the further question is, if you're, if you're beginning with an idea that is your presupposition, then how, and, and that idea will then, it, it then controls everything you think about theology and about the world in general, how can you be criticized if 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 my idea of the Bible is what's presupposed, but my idea of the Bible is actually false, then I I presuppose a false idea of the Bible uh, that can't be criticized, and it can't be criticized because I can't I'm not allowed to to investigate that presupposition. Otherwise, I would have presuppositions that come before that. So if the Bible is, or, or the Trinity, it's, Bart would say it's Christ, uh, if that's the most fundamental presupposition, then I cannot investigate that idea. And it's not, it's not the thing itself that I can't investigate. It's my idea of the thing itself that I can't investigate. Uh, and so I think, this is, I think this is what explains a lot of uh, errors regarding the doctrine of God. You know, you have the whole case got Oliphant and Westminster uh, dust up that's been going on for years now, and there's still fallout from that. Um, there's all the doctrinal issues and the uh, theology proper issues and someone like John Frame. Uh, Van Til had his own quirks about the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, equal ultimacy and things of that nature. There are Trinitarian issues with, um, uh, you know, other mainline presuppositional apologists that you could think of today. Um, and I think the reason for that is is that presuppositionalism or critical epistemology, which is what it is, it's a Christ Christianized version of that, makes the idea of something, it makes your idea, your subjective understanding of what that thing is, it makes it the foundation. So it makes yourself, your own intellectual operation, the foundation. It doesn't make the thing itself the foundation. It makes your intellectual operation, namely your presupposition, the foundation, which ends up making you infallible. Um, it's a very devastating uh, way to, to try and think. Um, so that's the first school. How man knows critical epistemology would say that man begins his knowledge apparatus with his own thought. The second school, and this is the school that I would locate myself within, is the realist or non-critical epistemology. Wilhelmsen calls this the non-critical school. Um, and the realist epistemology or the non-critical school of epistemology seeks to derive knowledge through the things known, such that human knowledge doesn't begin with the, the knowing subject. It doesn't begin with me. It's derived from the object to be known. 
right? In other words, it's derived from the objective world outside the subject. So that the referent of our knowledge is always the thing itself rather than our idea of the thing itself. Now, you have all of the problems, you know, downstream from this that have been answered. Wilhelmson gives an answer to it, but the, uh, the, the problem of false perception and things like that. Well, how do you know you're, you're, you actually know the thing in and of itself? And, you know, the, the kind of the way in which the critical philosopher would press realist epistemology would be by asking questions along those lines. How do you know you're really perceiving the outside world? Or, or like Descartes, you'd have the methodical doubt that would go so far as to say, well, you could just be deceived by a bunch of demons. The modern, the way to speak about that in the more modern sense would be to say, you're, you could be just a brain in a vat. Uh, and, and thus nothing is, is true. That's, the, that's where the critical school takes you. Um, realist epistemology would really take reality for granted. And it would then say that the way I know at all is through the things to be known. I don't know in virtue of starting with myself. I know in virtue of apprehending the thing itself. Um, Wilhelmson describes this. He says, the non-critical philosophers, the metaphysical realists, begin with things, and in the course of their speculations, they explain knowledge in terms of what they know about the being of the things that are. So, um, we could summarize it. Uh, we could summarize it in this way, and this is the way Wilhelmson summarizes it. He says the first principle of critical epistemology is the truth that thought is either thinking in general or my own thinking. So the first principle of critical epistemology is the truth that thought is. That's where they begin. Then he says the first principle of non-critical epistemology, metaph metaphysical realism is the truth that being is, or beings are. In other words, knowledge begins with the things to be known. It doesn't begin in our thought. So we're taking, we're taking two totally different principles between those two, two schools. The critical school is, is taking uh, its principle from human thought. Uh, the, the realist school is taking its principle from what is objectively real and what exists being right so to to summarize realist epistemology i think i think we could give a hearty summary of it here and this is this would be my position by the way i'm not claiming to give a a robust or comprehensive uh refutation of <laughs> critical epistemology here uh i would commend the work of uh etienne gilson on uh his little book on uh, critical, I think it's critical realism. Um, you could you could check that out, and there he offers some rebuttals to uh, an accretion of the 20th century, which was uh, a notion of critical realism, basically uh, an attempt to fuse critical epistemology with uh, non-critical epistemology, and he goes through and refutes that. But it's very helpful for for seeing the difference. Between the two, but realist realist epistemology. Uh, in realist epistemology, knowledge is established through the thing to be known, right? So the objective world, uh, the subject that is the knower, apprehends the thing known through the sense organ or through various sense organs, and the intellect infers additional knowledge from what is apprehended through the senses, and that's called deduction, right? So you you apprehend. Uh, 
movement in the outside world from, you know, through sense perception, you see it uh, or you feel it. Um, uh, and then from motion, you can infer other things, right? Uh, you can infer other things about the world. Um, you can infer contingency from motion. Well, if there's motion, there would have had to have been uh, a mover, either the thing moving is self-moved or it's moved by another and so on, right? So you can, you can infer further knowledge from what is apprehended through the senses. So Thomas will say things like, all knowledge begins with the senses, but uh, we also admit that not all knowledge stops with the senses, right? So whereas all knowledge begins with the senses, we go on to infer other things from what is perceived sensibly. Um, so realist epistemology in the final analysis grounds human knowledge in the objective world rather than in man's own thought. That's the main difference between realist epistemology and, uh, and critical epistemology. Um, Wilhelmson goes on and he says, the non-critical thinkers are in the tradition of Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas. The existence of things in and for themselves is evident to all men, and this evidence is the first truth known to man, and it is the first truth known to philosophy. Everything else that is known by man is known in the light of this first truth about being. And then he goes on and he says, quote, the thing, what is known, acts first on our sense organs, which in receiving the action are thereby altered. He's describing the process of our intellection. He's describing the process of our psychology. So this is the psycho psychological operation that he's describing here. So let me start again, having prefaced with that. Quote, the thing, the thing, what is known, the object to be known, acts first on our sense organs. Notice it's the, it's the objective world acting on us, which, he says, in receiving the action are thereby altered. Our sense organs are altered. The thing is then present to the sense organ both existentially and formally, and in this case, he says, materially as well, because the thing acts materially on a material organ, namely our senses. The sense organs are altered only so long as the thing acts, and the thing can continue to act only so long as it exists. The sense organs are altered the way in which they are altered because the thing acts the way in which is it is. All right, so in other words, what he's saying is a particular thing is going to produce a particular kind of knowledge in us because of the way that thing is. So that thing is... And because that thing is the way that it is, it's going to act on us, on our sense organs, in a particular way that's in proportion to what it is. So this is how nature's or specified being actually ends up affecting our knowledge and, and the way we know in different ways. We know a dog um, in a different way than we would know abstract numbers, right? And... Um, and, and even if we're talking about material organisms like a dog and a flower, a flower affects our sense organs in a distinct way in proportion with what it is as a flower than a dog would affect our sense organs because a dog is, is a different thing. It, it has a different nature than a flower. And so we, we know it in a... Um, we know it to be different than other things, right? Um, so our, no, our, our knowledge is always in proportion to what a thing is, 
because it's that thing uh, in accordance with its own nature that's acting upon our sense perception. That's kind of the process of, of realist epistemology. And so uh, as a result, and this is kind of where I'm going with this, we know what is most immediate to us. We know what is most immediate to us. If all knowledge begins in the senses, it doesn't stop in the senses, but it begins in the senses, then we must know what is most immediate to us, um, that which is perceptible through, through sense perception. This is not to say that there is no innate category for knowledge, but I would say this when we're talking about innate knowledge. When we're talking about innate knowledge, we're not talking about something that's actually apprehended in the intellect uh, by default or something like that. It's not as a, like we're talking about innate knowledge if we're uh, as applied to an infant. We're not saying that an infant actually knows something, but that that infant has a particular capacity or habit to know a particular thing. So when we talk about the census divinitatis, we're not talking about content filled in this infant's mind, that this infant actually like has content there, infused knowledge, we might call it. Um, we mean rather that the, the infant has a sense, a capacity, a habitus to know the divine. All right. And then as soon as confronted with the outside world, again, sense perception, that infant cannot, that person cannot um, escape the reality of God's existence. And this whole idea with Romans 1, 18 through 20 is the instrumental dative is saying that we know God through what has been made. Uh, we have to keep in mind that uh, man is part of what has been made. So we do know God in a, a closer sense than just what we can know of God through the outside world. Conscience, for example, God's existence is intuited through a conscientious um, understanding of right and wrong and so on and so forth. But uh, there's still an intellectual operation that takes place there. Um, and I would say that really uh, the conscience isn't uh, a, a, a bank of propositional knowledge either. Uh, it's, it's different. That's a different discussion, but, but it's, it's, it's not. The conscience isn't memory. It's not, um, it's not full of propositions. It's not populated by content per se. It's a, again, it's a sense. It's a capacity to discern right from wrong. Um, and then upon discerning right from wrong, we infer from that uh, that there is a uh, a standard for that for an objective standard for right and wrong. And then we infer from that that of course there's a a lawgiver or a standard giver. I, I I'll, I'll also note before I move on to the biblical theory of cognition here um, that to to I think what often happens in the apologetic discussions is that sense knowledge is, is downplayed and it's downplayed, I think to a fault. Now, obviously there are perceptive errors and things like that. We have to be careful of and but, but I want to say this and I want to say this as charitably and, but as clearly as I can, I think it's my opinion and I'm not trying to insult a person here, but I, I think that to downplay sense knowledge in favor of some kind of an innate or spiritually infused knowledge apart from the senses seems to imbibe a flavor of Gnosticism. Um, because essentially what it's saying is it's, is it saying that like um, there, there is, 
there is something altogether more desirable than this this means of knowledge that God has created us with um, and to use to his glory. Uh, whereas, you know, I think the fact that we can employ our senses in order to know things uh, should be, and, and actually even in order to know God, should be glorious to us. It should be uh, embraced by us. And we shouldn't be trying to get away from that. I think it's the most common sense understanding of, of how man comes to knowledge in the first place. I think if everyone's honest with themselves in your own life experience, you know, you think back to as early as you can remember, four or five, six maybe. For some of you, uh, you might be able to remember back to when you're like four years old, five years old. Um, you think about the way you progressed in knowledge, and it was you progressed in knowledge in virtue of more experience with the outside world. Um, more sights, sounds, whether those be words of instruction or whatever. Um, you, your, your, your knowledge grew in proportion with, with that experience. And so I think to, to downplay sense knowledge in favor of some kind of innate spiritually infused knowledge actually lends it's, it's, that, that would be more of a platonic form of knowledge. Uh, this kind of infused knowledge would be would be very platonic, but we also have to remember that it was Plato that in many ways sowed the seeds of later Gnosticisms down the road. Uh, and so um, I think when, when we're talking about epistemology or a theory of cognition, if we start to say, well... And infused knowledge, apart from my sense experience with the outside world, with the material world, is altogether better. I think we actually sow the seeds of agnosticism right there, because we're prioritizing something that's kind of ethereal, out of our control, uh, and and occurs in spite of the material world and our sense perception, uh, and we're doing so over that which we can know through the senses. And uh, I think I think you get a, a flavor of Gnosticism there. I'm not accusing presuppositionalists uh, or presuppositional individuals of being Gnostics, but I am saying that I think it's my opinion that there's a, a danger of Gnosticism lurking in the the presuppositional uh, school of thought. So let's. The last thing I would like to do is just uh, look at the biblical theory of cognition. This won't be a full blown excursus or anything like that, but I do think it's worth looking at this. And I'm going to try to do it. I am going to look at Romans 1 in a moment, but what I want to do is I want to bring in an added element here. Um, the, the phraseology that they may know is used 23 times in Scripture uh, across both Old and New Testaments. And each time that phrase is used, Usually it's used by the Lord. That they may know or that you may know that I am the Lord. Every time that's used, it's used in connection with sensible phenomena. So the plagues of Egypt were so that you may know I am the Lord. Um, some examples, Exodus 8 verse 22, and in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. He's going to sanctify that. 
that land and, and they'll be able to perceive this. He's, he's telling them something that will happen. This is something that they will be able to perceive in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. So there's a sensible phenomena, the absence of flies from the land of Goshen, connected with knowledge of who the Lord is, knowledge that the Lord is and knowledge of who the Lord is. Jeremiah 44, verse 29, And this shall be a sign for you, to you, says the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. So in this case, the sensible phenomenon would be punishment. Uh, that would lead to knowledge um, of the Lord's words uh, or the surety of the Lord's words and the certainty of the Lord's words. Um, Matthew chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, uh, Jesus asked the scribes, Why do you think evil thoughts in your heart? Uh, or he says, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Again, he's, he's saying that you may know this spiritual reality. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. A perceptible, sensible phenomenon. Uh, a miracle wrought to heal the paralytic would have not only witnessed to the paralytic, but the people who saw the miracle. And so, each time this phraseology is used, it's always connected with a sensible phenomenon. It's as if, it's as if the Bible is telling us, like, the way that you know is through being shown. Right? And, and that would connect really well with a realist epistemology because what realism says is that the way we know is through the, the sensible phenomena. We know through what is. And God is essentially telling us in the scriptures, I'm going to do this thing and you will know in virtue of that thing that I am the Lord. All right. I think it becomes even more clear when you get to Romans 1, 18 through 21. Everybody knows the passage. If you've been involved in this discussion, this passage has been beat like a dead horse. Um, but I'm going to beat it once more here. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without uh, excuse. Because although they knew God, again, how did they know God? They understood him through what is made. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Um. The thing that's often missed in Romans 1, 18 through 20 is the instrumental dative, um, which occurs in the word poiema, or in the actual manuscript, it would be poiemasi, poiemasi, something like that. I'm not an expert at pronouncing Greek. No one is. Um, and the dative there tells us that it's through means of. So being understood through means of that which is made or being understood by or through the things that are made. 
Um, in other words, it's the creation that serves as the medium for a knowledge that leads us to God. We know God through the things that have been made. Um, so what Paul's not saying here, he's not saying that we come with a, you know, uh, automatic knowledge that, uh, well, I won't say automatic in a sense we kind of do because you can't, once you know, you have to, you have to end up knowing God at some point. It's discursive though still, however, um, you're not born with pre-downloaded knowledge. <laughs> you're not, that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that, he's not saying that everybody, uh, knows God because it's been infused into them in their mother's womb or anything like that. He's saying, no, no, through knowledge of the world through means of what is made, you know God. Um, now, the the reform would divide this into innate and acquired knowledge. Innate knowledge referring to, Bob Inc. has a really good discussion on this in, in the first volume of his Reform Dogmatics. Innate knowledge in the Reformed refers to the innate capacity or habit the tendency for man to know God, that as soon as he comes into contact with the outside world, he can't help but know God. Um, acquired knowledge requ uh, refers to that knowledge which is reached through means of something like argumentation um, or observation even of uh, inferences from the uh, outside world. Think of Thomas Aquinas's five proofs. That would be, a, those would be instances of, of acquired knowledge of God, those conclusions from arguments like that. So I, I think the, I think what we're talking about just scripture, you know, Van Til is notorious for not exegeting scripture like ever. Uh, he even acknowledged that. Um, and his followers have acknowledged that. K. Scott Oliphant uh, gave a talk where, you know, he said that Van Til was particularly not, um, it was not a strong suit uh, of Van Til's uh, exegesis. But I think when we, if, if you actually want to figure out what kind of cognitive theory scripture assumes, you just read scripture and you realize that, well, God is proposing sensible things to creatures in view of the creatures knowing him through those things, whether those be supernatural or natural. Romans 1, 18 through 21, you're talking about the natural world. Um, and then, you know, in Jeremiah 44, 29 or Exodus 8, you're talking about supernatural occurrences. Uh, Matthew 9, you're talking about a miracle that's wrought through which God is known or through which Christ is known. Um whether that be supernatural or natural, there is yet a sensible phenomenon that is proposed to man as a medium through which man comes to knowledge. And I think we can, I think we can, I think generally considered man comes to knowledge that way, but I think also regarding the existence of God, man comes to knowledge of God and comes to additional knowledge of God, further knowledge, and grows in his knowledge of God through that uh, psychological operation. Um, so I am, this is a longer episode than usual. I knew that this was going to happen. Um, I, I hope that it was helpful. 
it was kind of like a fire hose being turned on. I understand. Uh, just by way of review, we looked at what is epistemology. It's not as easy as defining it as a science of knowledge. Um, we looked at historical epistemology, doctrinal epistemology, specific epistemology, how man knows the two schools, critical epistemology and realist epistemology. Uh, my position is that realist epistemology comes out on top because its its first principle is the truth that being is. It's it's man's knowledge is grounded in things. It doesn't begin with man's own subjective thought. Um, realist epistemology consists in knowledge that is established through the thing known. Uh, the subject or the knower apprehends the thing known through the senses. Knowledge begins in the senses but doesn't stop in the senses. Um, and uh, biblical, a biblical theory of cognition would seem to align with that. Exodus 8, 22, Jeremiah 44 and 29, Matthew 9, 4 through 6 seems to present two man sensible phenomena that would be used to know the Lord more or to know the Lord initially even. Um, and then Romans 1, 18 through 21 seems to solidify that case by using the instrumental dative. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. <laughs> For my liking, that's too long. Too long of an episode. Hopefully it was useful. If it was, please uh, consider sharing it. Um, if it blessed you, Maybe it'll bless someone else. God bless. Have a wonderful rest of your day.